I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. This week, I had the pleasure of connecting with a dynamic leader that has worn many hats in life, and most recently has been building an impressive infrastructure at the Refugee Investment Network. John Kluge articulates beautifully the true design of one-pocket thinking and humanizing the problems of individuals, and in this case, displaced people all around the world. Many people are gonna listen to this episode and immediately assume that supporting refugees is somehow in the realm of governments and NGOs, and they'll ask, what business do the capital markets have in this space anyways? John has some great insights, and I hope you stick with us to hear some of the amazing ways to creatively work across the capital continuum to support refugees. But first, he and I had some fun connecting around our shared experience of having both moved on to farms and the wonderful new world of farm living. Literally traded in my apartment in New York and now we have a farm and I couldn't think of living anywhere else. So, Do you farm anything or is it a gentleman's farm? Is it a It's it's a farm in the making. So, ah. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the documentary Biggest Little Farm. Um, mm-hmm. we're kind That's of That's you. We're at the very beginning, like the oh, okay. very beginning. Um, we have a lot of work ahead of us. COVID gave us a chance to experiment uh, with our growing operations. And let's just say that if we were on the frontier, we'd probably be dead. <laughs> so my wife and I just moved onto a farm. So uh, 11 acres and uh, very similar. So we literally yesterday lost a duck mm-hmm. and so to some wild animals. So we're learning all of the you know, backwards and forwards and, you know, lo- losing blueberry bushes and yeah. we're supposed to get bees here in a couple of weeks. I got to figure that out. Yes, we're getting bees too in about a week. Uh, we'll, have, oh, we'll have three hives. I have ambitions to create a mead cooperative uh, at some point. Me too. Really? Man. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do a whole podcast just on mead. <laughs> I know. I even, it's like, I want to call it like Bee Buzzed or something like that as the brand or something. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that'd it. be fun. I like it. It's funny because we have like really close mutual friends and the fact that we haven't met before. Um, but that's, that's great. And I think that's what I love about doing the podcast and also this space. Um, you're only a couple of degrees of separation away from really interesting people and some deep friendships. And, and so I look forward to the conversation today, but also kind of hopefully where this goes from here as well. Um, so we were talking before we started just about kind of like what is more than profit as a podcast and kind of what we're trying to do with this season uh, of really looking at different strategies on, on impact, fund managers that are really thinking creatively about returns um, and really pursuing that for investors and endowments and such. And I'm excited to talk to you about what you're doing at the Refugee uh, Network. Um, and, and so, but I want to kind of get to know you a little bit. So can you talk to me a little bit about, you, you know, you're from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, you've got an, a, an unbelievably impressive resume. Uh, so I don't want to read LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so talk to me about like growing up in Charlottesville and now you're back in Charlottesville uh, living on a farm, trying to figure out the farm life, um, have a professor wife, uh, which is, which is pretty killer, I'm sure. Uh, so what was it like growing up in Charlottesville and, and what were those early years like? And, and then how did you find yourself going from Charlottesville, um, to, to Columbia and then Babson and, and kind of into this world of, of impact investing and values alignment and such? Well, there's a lot there. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll give you the abbreviated version um, because uh, I'm not I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So there's quite a few years to to cover. Um, you know, I was born in New York originally uh, in Rockland County, um, and my biological mother was very very young. Um, she did not have a lot of means, and she was just at the beginning of her college career. Um, so she put me up for adoption um, right after birth. And so I got adopted by these two pretty amazing parents. Um, you could call it sort of the lucky sperm club in a way. Like um, my my outcome and my trajectory and kind of life path could have been extraordinarily different. Um, one, I think if my birth mom hadn't decided to go through with, you know, bring me to term. But two, if I was adopted by different people. Um and so my parents um, both were immigrants to the United States. My dad came over when he was about eight in 1922. He was penniless and uh, extraordinarily young. Uh, came over from East Germany with his mom and his stepfather, who lived in Detroit, and brought them out of this tenement house in Chemnitz, Germany, um, took them through Ellis Island. My dad was actually detained for several weeks because he didn't have any medical records. It's not so dissimilar from the kind of some of the detention that young kids are being put in now, um, except, you know, this was on an island then, and we actually had a specific place for this. Um, but he came and saw this country as a place of opportunity and hope, um, very different from the place that he had left. And he was given a chance here. Um, and in some ways, it was kind of similar for my mother. Different circumstances. Uh, she was born in Baghdad. My side of the family on her side were half Scottish, and the other half were Iraqis from Mosul. Um, and so in 1958, after the revolution there, anyone that had any sort of affiliation with the previous government, particularly those that had colonial ties uh, to the Brits were taken out into the street. Uh, if they weren't imprisoned, they were executed, um, which was happening to, to some of their friends. Um, so my mom and my, my grandfather fled um, and were actually political refugees and went to the UK. Um, and eventually she came here in the 70s, which is when they got together. Um, and she and my dad got together and, and then they adopted me. So. Um, you know, they, they came from very different backgrounds, but had this kind of this sense of optimism for what the United States offered them. Um, they were both quite different in age, but wanted to build a life together. And despite the fact that my dad was working in New York, my mom did not want to raise her little kid in the city life, uh, probably because she grew up as a teenager in London and didn't want something like that for me. <laughs> Um, so my dad had a farm in Virginia a, a, a couple of years prior. Um, and so he said, let's, let's go look at some land down there. And this is where we ended up. Hmm. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the fact that they decided to adopt me, um, and to raise me. And, and both of them are incredibly entrepreneurial people. Um, one who's had tremendous success and my mom has had some success and some extraordinary failures as well. Um, but I do think growing up with that kind of a parent helped to open my eyes on the world. Um, one, to look for different opportunities, but two, also to just grow up with a deep sense of gratitude 
things really could have been very different uh, for me, for my parents, if someone hadn't given them a chance on their yeah. respective journeys, man, things would have been different for them. They would have been different for me. Wow. Um, so at college, um, by that point, my dad was in his late eighties. And, hmm. um, I remember towards the end of college, he fell out of bed and broke his hip and he was 89 and he had had health problems, you know, here and there over the years and surgeries and stuff. But like, you know, when your dad is 68, when you're born, you think they're going to be around like forever. And, and he would feed that myth. <laughs> um, and you probably kept him young too. I mean, toddler running around when ah, he was 68. I think he, he, he kept himself young. He was like, ah. <laughs> he was a real curmudgeon. Was, I'm, I'm not leaving. I'm sticking around forever. Um, That's great. And he had plans, you know, he had plans 50 years on. Um, but then all of a sudden one thing happens and you realize that life is so fragile and, mm. you know, any, at any moment, uh, the people that you know can be gone. Um, so I, I was just finishing up school and I decided to move in with him for a summer right after college. I also had no idea what I really was going to do afterward, um, other than some sort of writing thing, which was not a plan. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we had this kind of like, I don't know, Tuesdays with Kluge kind of experience. It was like, um, part helping to support him in his rehabilitation part asking him questions I never thought I'd have the chance to do if something happened again. Um, and that time I think was really instrumental in helping me figure out the direction, not necessarily the specific path, but the, the general direction of what I wanted to do. Um, and there was something he said, so, cause he was in, in and out of over 200 different businesses over the course of his lifetime. Wow. By businesses, I'm using that term very broadly sure. to define everything from like hustling his neighborhood kid friends like in marble schemes uh, <laughs> to like padding for the mob in Detroit in the 20s to, you know, running Metromedia and, and, and um, a radio and TV network later on. So really very widely. But I, I said, would you do anything differently? Like if you could start over, rewind. um and he said, no. And then he said, yes. He said one thing. Um, if he knew everything he knew at the age of 89, um, he would have actually started out in medicine. And I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't something I expected. I said, why is that? And he said, because it's the only thing, the only practice that he had been involved in over the course of his life more so as a philanthropist and a funder in his later years, where there were some surety um, that what he was doing as a profession was going to improve the lives of other human beings. It was the only way that he knew he could make a difference as a profession. And he spent most of his life uh, doing what our friend Ross Baird would call two-pocket thinking, right? He was yep. generating economic value through his primary business activities, waiting for it to achieve a certain um, level of success, and then using that revenue to to go out and try and do good things in the world. Uh, yeah. But he never lost touch with who he was as an eight-year-old boy trying to find opportunity who had, you know, didn't have a pot to piss in. And I think that that, um, that realization was was kind of an awakening for me. 
Yeah. And what was was cool was at the time I was getting to know a number of social entrepreneurs who didn't necessarily define themselves as such. Um, and I was getting to meet investors who also didn't call themselves impact investors at the time, but were doing that work. And the, the sort of aha moment was that you didn't have to actually go into medicine. You know, it, to my dad, that was the closest thing he could identify with as a social entrepreneur. Um, yeah. where your profession is embedded with this purpose of service. Um, and uh, I realized that there were so many other options for that. But that is what I wanted. I, I didn't want to wait till I was 89, if I made it that long, to figure yeah. out how to, how to give to my community, to give to my, uh, to, to my family, to, to the world. And I think that being adopted and maybe harboring some sort of like, I don't know if you want to call it survivor's guilt or, or just this sense that I have to earn my place. Hmm. Um, that was a driver, I think, in trying to sort of prove that I deserved to have the shot. Yeah. Did I, I've got to ask as, as a, as you were talking about the questions with Kluge, it's, it's uh, my wife, her grandfather served in world war two and, um, at one point, somebody sat down and actually did the same thing. And I think that's an interest. I wish more people would do that, take the time to actually ask questions about, you know, older generations' lives and kind of what's driven them, what they would. I'm just curious, did you happen to record that or was it just informal conversations? Oh, oh yeah. We wrote a book uh, or I wrote a book about it. Um, that's awesome. Uh, the book didn't turn out as the kind of like the memoir thing that I, that I was aspiring to. Uh, <laughs> there's probably another book in it. But um, I did take all of all of the things that he said and then artifacts that I discovered while I was like digging up his his storage units. Um, we created a book of his stories, basically. That's so cool. Um, What's it called? Um, very creative. I know John Kluge stories. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, you know, sometimes the simplest title is the best. title. No, we, went, we went very simple then. Um, but it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience and one that I'm very grateful to have had. Um, and, and did you ever get to, you know, so the, the, the questions with Kluge and, and then the, the, the journey you were on yourself, did, did that ever come full circle? Were you able to kind of share with him kind of your own understanding and where that was taking you? Or was that, was that still his thinking of like, you know, back to your, the two pocket of like the best use of of his abilities would have been to have been a doctor because he could have impacted people's lives more directly. We didn't have, I wasn't, I think deep enough in my own path, uh, mm -hmm. at that point, uh, by the time that he finally passed away, uh, for us to have that conversation. Um, yeah, I think that wherever he has ended up, um, you know, I, I hope that he feels contentment and pride in how things have shaken out. Uh, yeah. I think he would get it. Um, I think in the in the first couple of years, as I was trying to figure it, it did take time. I mean, I didn't I didn't go like right into social enterprise. Uh, sure. The first first thing I did was working as a legislative aide uh, for an anti poverty think tank, um, and then I worked for a, a track track one point five diplomacy organization um, based in New York. So it, it took some time before I actually got into the kind of approach to work that I'm doing now and a few other people that were really great mentors, uh, yeah. and examples. 
Um, well, so you ended up at some point going on to Babson and, and getting an MBA. Um, I think by this point, probably in your life, there was more of a a, a clarity around path for you. Is that is that correct? Oh, 100 um, percent. And it and it came through failure. To be mm. honest. Uh, what was the failure? Well, so. I, when I, so I was working at the East West Institute in New York, um, which was run by the late John Morose, Um, and they, you know, were really important in the 1980s during the cold war as a kind of a back channel between the U S and Russia, uh, or the, the USSR. And then they did some interesting work in the Balkans and they were sort of evolving, trying to find their way. Um, but I had all these incredible friends that were going out and building stuff who hmm. were in the private sector or working in private investment and in growing up with two, two entrepreneurial parents, um, you know, one who had tremendous financial success as well, you kind of get into this, like this network, right? This very privileged network of people that come from extraordinary means and wealth. Um, and what was fascinating to me was that many of their, the next generation the children of the the matriarchs or the patriarchs in these families were going through this shift of wanting to pursue a sort of a life of purpose and and trying to find meaning and and moving from a two pocket type of thinking to a one pocket thinking and planning for you know perhaps some inheritance down the way so there was a group of them that came together um, and asked a friend of mine and I to put together what was basically a search fund um, for impact, looking at very large intractable, intractable problems um, in aging, peace building, and water and sanitation. And as we were doing diligence to find the pipeline of deals to build a fund around in the water sanitation space, we found that sanitation was this like super under underserved uh, underinvested sector, particularly at the base of the pyramid, where there was a need for more sustainable long-term approaches, um, where there was a need for technology to do like reporting, um, but there weren't enough deals. They're just you know they were all tiny, you know little mom and yeah. pop shops, um, and you couldn't actually structure a whole fund around it. And this was you know maybe a decade and change ago. So we set up this the social enterprise to help create an ecosystem. It was a market building um, enterprise called Toilet Hackers. Because uh, initially we started with tech. We did these hackathons with the World Bank and the Gates Foundation and um, and it expanded. But the, the most exciting thing that we were doing in that work was this partnership that didn't work out. Um, we were bringing Sesame Street together with, uh, or Sesame Workshop together with the Worldwide Association of Girl Scouts and Girl Guides uh, and UBS. Um, and UBS was excited because it was a collective impact model. Um, they saw sort of a leveraged opportunity for their philanthropic funding. Sesame had this incredible content to teach hygiene and education. And, and the WAGS, as it's called, is basically the international side of the Girl Scouts. They don't have a cookie business model overseas, but they do have other programs. Hmm. And they have 80 million women alumni um, and almost 10 million actively serving girls, Girl Scouts. So it's, it's basically a delivery mechanism for any kind of social change content curriculum or tools um, you could imagine. And the idea was to create a SOAP version of um, 
of the cookie business. Hmm. Um, and basically use that as a way to teach hygiene to, to 6 million girls in the first year. So I was really excited about it. We had the money lined up um, and the whole thing imploded. Um, and <laughs> it was such a bummer. Um, and for me, you know, we were doing incremental projects, incremental change, yeah. and this would have just completely blown it open. Um, but I realized that what I didn't quite grasp was the fundamentals of organizational culture hmm. um, and how to align the interests of a social organization, uh, a, a business and a bank, um, and a nonprofit that actually had a new CEO that was coming from the private sector. Um, and figuring out how to kind of manage human relationships um, mm. was something I really wanted to learn about, but organized around the instruments of business and investment. Um, because for some reason, I just felt like this is, if we're gonna if we're gonna start changing things at scale, there are two mechanisms to do that. One is through government and, and, and policy, and the other is economic based uh, change. Uh, economic yeah. leverage. So that's why I went back to, to business school. And, and there's a whole nother side of that story, which is like, we had this, I was already thinking about that. And then I went to India uh, for, for a conference we were producing with the, uh, the ministry of, of health um, and the, the Chicago booth school in Delhi. And my business partner at the time couldn't go. So I went in his stead I was staying at this, uh, this apartment in uh, the neighborhood of Vasant Kunj, which is in the south. And I got a message from the apartment owner, who was a friend, um, and she was traveling. So she messaged me. She's like, make sure you go to the roof and watch the sunset before it goes down um, while you're there. So I went up to the roof. And what she didn't know is that the landlord had a, um, a Tibetan mastiff that was trained to hunt panthers. And it had attacked somebody in the street. And so to put it out of harm's way, he left it on the rooftop. Of course. Because that's where you put your man-eating yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I didn't know. And so I went up on the roof and the door closed and this thing just sunk its teeth into my leg. Um, and I, I honestly thought I was going to die on that rooftop. Uh, oh, um, my gosh. It was terrifying. Um, and I ended up staying in, in India for about two months in recovery and just had a lot of time to think. And, uh, and my life really changed after that moment. I, I was like, I'm going to go back to business school. Uh, I'm going to hmm. look at how we can mobilize finance for some of these big, big challenges. Um, I'm asking this wonderful professor I know out on a date. Um, <laughs> and I'm leaving New York City. Like these are, these That's are crazy. Um, That's awesome. So, so fast forwarding to, to today, I mean, your, your bio, I mean, we could spend, it's, it's just fascinating. Um, everything from, from Kiva to, um, to a task force on forced migration. Uh, but right now you're the founder and the managing director of the, the refugee investment network, uh, and kind of helped bring, bring to life the, the refugee lens. And so if you're in the impact investing, you're kind of familiar with that space. A lot of times we talk about these lenses like gender lens investing or, uh, creative lens, uh, which is a new one, uh, newer one. Uh, and so now refugee lens. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with that, what can you help explain? Like what is a refugee lens? And then what is it you are hoping to accomplish, uh, through the refugee investment network? It's a good question, Bryce. So, um, 
a lens, like to me, a lens is just something that you apply to see to see something you're not seeing or see someone you're not seeing. Uh, and in, in some ways, that's it's about intentionality. Uh, I think what we have found is, particularly within capital markets, if there isn't intentionality, then a lot of people get left behind and a lot of opportunities are left on the table. Um, and this has a lot to do with bias, both conscious and unconscious, um, and the sort of litany of isms, sexism, racism, um, you know, you name it. Um, and we all suffer from these things in some way. Um, and that's where intentionality and sort of frameworks and being very proactive about um, how you look at the world becomes more important. The, this work um, is really about thinking of people who are on the move in different contexts as being important partners um, in building a more prosperous, sustainable, and healthy world and community, rather than one, um, either it's you know not my problem that there are over 80 million people who forcibly displaced today. It's um, you know an issue. Migration generally and displacement are things that the the average person in the global west or the global west uh, north experiences through the media unless you live on a border or unless you live on a place that's a um, sort of an asylum receiving port. And that's problematic because you're either being told a narrative that's grounded in fear. These people are bringing disease or they're coming to attack us or they're going to invade all of the, the sort of extreme um, nationalistic kind of views that we hear about from nationalist politicians, for example. Or it's one of extraordinary vulnerability. These people are in crisis. There's, um, they're coming with the clothes on their back. You know, my dad came with the clothes on his back. Sure. And he built quite a lot uh, in his time. But someone saw him as more than that. Someone saw him yeah. as being more than a vulnerable person with nothing to offer. And that is what this is about. It's about using capital and a view on the world that helps to create more pathways for people to live their potential, to be contributors in whatever way they want to contribute, regardless of where they come from or why they've been forced to move, um, and treat people like people, and yeah. not as some kind of amorphous problem or crisis or you know caravan. Um, we we designed the refugee migration lens with some inspiration from the gender lens and, and all of the, the great progress that our colleagues in that field and theme um, have made over the last 20 years. And there's so much more work to be done in there. You know, it's, it, yeah. it's a joke in terms of where, how, how dysfunctional our capital community is from an allocation perspective. Um, but because of very smart efforts and and some some really brilliant people that have stayed in the game for a long time um like my friend suzanne beagle like there's you know there, there's forward progress and i think what we need is is for investors regardless of where they or you sit on the capital continuum or on the risk continuum um to realize that you have agency and yeah. there is something that you can be doing with your capital 
and your portfolios and your strategy and, and even your, your networks um, to improve outcomes for people who are on the move. So I got to ask, because I think, you know, on more than profit as a, as a theme, uh, I think this resonates. I think with this season where we're talking about kind of conscious construction of, of portfolios and different strategies, I help me understand, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to wonder, because uh, you talked about these kind of these two levers, like government policy and economic drivers to help affect change in, in communities. Um, refugees are not one that you necessarily think about as an investment opportunity. You know, like I would, I would imagine many people are listening and saying, yep, that makes sense. Or yes, I get it. There are 80 million people on the move. Uh, hopefully they think that. Um, but then that, that's a policy issue or that's what NGOs are for because, so help me understand like how, where is, is there an investment opportunity? How, how have you seen capital move? Are, are there some strategies that you have as an example where, uh, as an investor or as a, as an endowment or as, as a, as a human being that people are moving capital in ways that support people on the move? Um, so, across across the globe. I mean, at a baseline, the answer is yes. Uh, there are many in their new. It was a softball. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we wouldn't be doing this if there weren't. There exactly. Um, but you know, think about the fact that that of the Fortune 500 companies, 45 percent were started by immigrants, refugees, or their kids. Hmm. Just 45. 45 percent. Um, it's, it's, it's almost double that as a percentage if you look at the top 15% of the, the Fortune 500 companies. That isn't to say that, that every person who's been forcibly displaced is going to become an entrepreneur or should be um, or is looking for investment. Um, but I think you know, what we wanted to do was to create a, a version 1.0 framework that different kinds of investors and capital partners in both the public and private finance worlds can use to start thinking about where their money can go and what kind of opportunities they can engage with. And there is a variety. So we work across kind of three different spectrums. Um, so there is this lens. And, um, you know, if, if your listeners want to go to refugeeinvestments.org, um, we have a resources page and they can look at the lens there. But it's pretty rudimentary in that there are like six different categories of deals that we look at from... Um, you know, companies that are led by displaced people. While we're the refugee investment network, we really think about uh, you know human mobility broadly speaking. So could be refugees, could be internally displaced people, could be climate migrants, um, can be indigenous communities who've been um, you know force, forcibly displaced. We have one of the largest sure. displaced communities on the planet here um, in the United States. Um, so, and we also think about the communities that are welcoming them and how investments can be used to support them and reward them for being welcoming, creating a space of belonging. Um, we think about the continuum of capital. So how different kinds of investments from grants to institutional capital um, to full commercial investing can be deployed. Um, we look at innovative finance products, uh, funds, debt instruments, alternative finance vehicles, um, we think about the continuum. So that's a continuum of capital. You've got the continuum of the market. So micro enterprise, small and medium sized businesses, large firms, infrastructure projects, um, and you know funds and debt type vehicles. And then we think about that continuum of mobility. So investments that are deployed that improve community resilience um, and anti fragility. So 
thinking about the context of climate, right? Central America is a great example where we have a lot of people on the move today, um, but the reasons that people are moving, the sort of the push factors are, can be complex. Um, it's not always one specific thing, right? We've got violence, there's instability, there's lack of livelihood opportunities, um, and then you have climate change that's exacerbating things like these two massive hurricanes that hit this, this last year. Um, but looking at like climate interventions, climate adaptation, crop insurance, um, those are sort of root cause or um, resilience type investments. Then we have investments yeah. that look at transit. So when people are in that state of movement or that state of crisis, typically those kind of investments are about strengthening humanitarian response capacity. So yeah. building better, uh, safer, and, and higher quality housing than tents, for example. Now, it's a common misperception that most refugees live in uh, camp-type environments. That's not true. It's actually a minority of refugees who are in a camp environment. Most are urban or peri-urban um, residents at the moment. Um, but it could also be looking at financial technology that allow people to bank uh, hold and transfer their, their cash assets while they're making their journey somewhere. Um, it could be a pay for success type program that is looking at financing, um, you know, humanitarian response um, in an emergency context because humanitarian aid has so little yeah. and overstretched resources. And then most of the investments tend to follow more on the, in the, that third stage, which is about economic inclusion and integration. And we really focus around what we call the, the social determinants of work because access to the formal economy is like this. It is the, the, one of the last big leaps that someone who's been displaced can make or needs to make um, to really being, you know, having their life back in their hands and having their agency to determine where they go next. Um, and, if you don't have access to transportation, if you don't have access to an affordable place to live, housing, um, if you don't have the ability to bank and transact in financial services, um, if you're a single parent, you don't have access to childcare. Without these things, it's very hard to seek full-time employment or to start and build your own business. Um, yep. So that is kind of the, the spectrums and the lens. I hope our listeners, you know, if they need to kind of slow it down or rewind. Cause I think <laughs> you did a great, a great job. Um, I think ex uh, explaining the, the, com the complexity, and I'm going to say it's complexity because I think what you've done is you've helped articulate like that the person, the, the refugee, the person experiencing displacement, uh, is at the center. And then what you're doing is like you you've put, you've put money capital in its proper place. And you said, it's a tool, it's a resource. And so how do I help this displaced person uh, achieve flourishing in society? How do I give them access and how do I help them improve agency, i.e. you know, their own mobility, the opportunities for them are expanded. And so then what you're doing is you're saying, well, what we need to do is deploy the, the continuum of capital. And then, and then it becomes conversations individually with, with investors around, you know, what their risk and return needs are. And we can, but, but I think the other thing that's interesting, it's like, you're not saying there's some refugee product out there or a refugee fund, but you're saying our goal as a network 
is to help this displaced person or this person on the move flourish. And in order to do that, they're going to need debt financing. They're going to need housing. They're going to need better transportation. They're going to need food and oftentimes find themselves in food deserts. And so there's food insecurity, all like language barriers, all these different things. And you're saying those are, those are problems. So it's complex. We're building an ecosystem here to help support these people, um, that have been displaced, um, and, and I love it. So I'm, I'm hoping people either slow it down, go back, because I think what you've articulated is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful picture of how we should think about uh, people, communities, money, um, and that you know, returns not the enemy. Like you've you've articulated various ways that entrepreneurs uh, that have been displaced have grown unbelievably successful businesses. Um, so return is not the enemy, but what we need to do is be like, what's the right type of capital, right structure to support these people? Well, I think for me, it, yes, exactly. And, and what I don't want is for an investor to, to be curious about this and feel like there isn't an opportunity for them to participate because there isn't the right product market fit. Like there is something for you. And if it doesn't exist, we will go out and create it. <laughs> I mean, and that's the exact, that's the exact message. Cause like, again, a lot of times, and the reason I wanted to do this season specifically is so many people on a heart level, I think uh, I, like, yes, I want to do something, but then you start talking investment and they're like, well, there's not a place for me. And you're like, well, I think that's the wrong starting point. Or, Hey, what, what do you need the money to do? What are you looking for? And then how do we go find a solution that fits that for a hundred percent? And and I guarantee that there is something for everybody to plug into here. Um, and as I said, if, if there isn't, part of what we do at Therein is we structure and design new new instruments and products and vehicles and strategies. So, um, yeah. you know, you have great products in microfinance. This the field has a long way to go. It's still nascent, but it has moved quickly in just the last couple of years. So three, four years ago, if you wanted to find a microfinance institution that was lending to refugee entrepreneurs would be really hard to do. There's a lot of concerns that people are there temporarily, that there's a higher risk profile. All of that's now been disproven thanks to some groundbreaking work from Kiva and, and its partners. Yep. They just closed on a $30 million investment fund, not their 0% interest crowdfunding thing, but a, an actual fund that's going to deliver around 6% rate of return to their accredited investors. That's a big leap for Kiva. Um, but the fact that they started with refugee enterprise and financing, um, I, I think just shows how important and exciting this market is to them. But it's not just microfinance. Um, you know, I mentioned some of those, the, the Fortune 500. There are over 18,000 small and medium-sized businesses in the United States run by former refugees. Um, they're at all various stages of growth and development in all different kinds of sectors. They're not just mom and pop shops. They're pretty big, you know, big ones as well. Um, one of the largest real estate uh, conglomerates in New Jersey is actually run by a former refugee from Liberia. Um, there's some really exciting stuff. There's a there's a housing company specializing in affordable housing for refugees that we advise that's based in Kentucky. Um, and, you know, they've been delivering around 19.5% rate of return for their investors. And that performance is derived because of the fact that refugees are at the center of their business model. They assist in client recruitment. Um, they tend to pay back faster and more reliably than, than other customers they've had in other areas. Um, there's, you know, an integrated component, a component on workforce development and job placement. 
Um, so the the overall financial health of their clients tends to be better than non-refugee housing providers in the area. Um, yet these clients are showing up and renting houses without credit, without assets, because yep. they're new arrivals and they don't have that. Um, so yeah. it just requires a little bit of commitment and curiosity on the part of the investor to say, let me take some time to think about what is the right strategy and opportunity for me. And how does this intersect yeah. with what I'm already doing? So it's not a huge leap, right? If an investor is excited about gender equality or they're excited about you know clean energy, we will find them opportunities in this space. Yeah, that's great. John, I, I feel like you and I could keep talking, but we've got to shut it off somewhere. And, and I think... I think it's exciting, and, and like you said, the the I think we see every day in the news, and we have for the last several years, um, <clears throat> the migration issue that we have both here in the United States, but also abroad with with climate change and and just conflict internationally uh, and the displacement of people. Uh, so, in closing, I think one of my questions I'd love to kind of just get your perspective on is what what are you concerned about in, as you continue to build a refugee investment network? What concerns you? related to kind of building this this new infrastructure um, and what keeps you up at night and then and then what are you really excited about what's what are you hopeful for uh, as you look to the future what what is really uh, driving driving you forward I think um, the concerns I have about this work is is you know maybe not not so different from what others in diversity equity inclusion might might have concerns about that that will rest on our laurels and and we actually won't move to more transformative approaches for investing where capital allocation decisions are, are not being made by, by people closer to the community. Um, I would like to see more people that come from a migrant, migrant, immigrant, or refugee background on investment committees or being able to make those decisions even if they're not on the committee. In, in, similar sure. to, to our friends at Village Capital, um, yeah. how they do their work. I, I think that, that we need more of that. Um, because the more people that we can integrate into those decisions um, who come from that background, um, the more chance that we're actually going to see changes in, in opportunity and equity for them. Yeah. Inclusive economies are growing economies. So as long as we can create those opportunities, I think all of the evidence and the data is going to follow. I have no concerns about that whatsoever. Um, I have general concerns about like the rise of nationalism and whether that's here in the United States or in Europe or even in Kenya, and how we will, as societies, we have a tendency to scapegoat people who come from other places when we are in a, in a period of pain. Um, and that is a concern. I think we need to demonstrate a different way of being um, and, and really stand for each other. And this is a way that investors can do that every single day of their work using the tools that they have available. They don't need to become activists per se. They can do their investing and create these opportunities and that will change the narrative. Sure. What I'm excited about is that there are major institutions that are getting involved in this work now. Um, That's great. So, you know, we are now working with the Japanese development agency, JICA. We're working with the Swiss development agency, uh, the SDC, which is a major leader in innovative finance. Um, we're talking now to the U S administration. It's the first time we've gotten a phone call from them in four years. Wonder why. Um, yeah. but you know, this is very positive because in terms of creating an enabling environment that will give some comfort to investors, because this is still a new thematic 
And sure, while there are plenty of deals here in the US or in Canada or in Europe, a lot of the deals are where most of the people are. And that's not here. That's in emerging markets. And doing business generally is hard there. So we need the development finance institutions at the table working together with the private investment community. That's starting to change, and that's a huge step forward. To learn more, check out refugeeinvestments.org, where you can find several resources, including a report coming out later in May on building inclusive economies in Latin America. We also have a link in the show notes to a report that came out in December, co-authored with the Rockefeller Foundation called Building Inclusive Economies, Applications of Refugee Lens Investing. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. If you liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.